getting pretty good out there. I see they've been practicing. And they've got one hell of a good teacher. The last samurai of Japan. Her name was Nakano Takeko. Nakano came of age at a time of great social unrest in her country. Some folks wanted European foreigners and influence out of Japan, and other folks disagreed. Her countrymen were at war with themselves, a war between families, a civil war, one of the bloodiest kinds of war. Nakano, I have trained you very well. To go as far as even adopting you as my daughter. Yes, thank you, Master. Your generosity and faith in me is humbling. The time has come to honor me greatly. Become a proper wife. Start your family now. But our country is at war with itself. Start a family? Now? We samurai, our ways could be lost forever. I cannot sit by and do nothing. Do nothing? To honor me is your highest duty. Get married. I am sorry. I cannot. I must fight. And with that, she rode to the only place she felt safe. A place where she could think clearly, create a plan of action. Home. And while she rode home, she thought. I can't believe I told him no. I defied him. But in my heart of hearts, I know I must do what is right. I must preserve my culture, our ways. Without our culture, we will forget ourselves. Who will we be? goes in. All of our great fighters cannot be forgotten. Tomoe goes in. An archer and a swordsman worth a thousand. She fights gods and demons, mounted and on foot. She rode unbroken horses into battle, leading her 300 samurais against an army of 2,000. She defeated that army and took heads as she went. They sent her out to battle first, they said, with a sword five times bigger than her and a mighty, mighty bow. She was a great warrior. But when her master fell injured during battle, he insisted she leave his side. He said it would bring dishonor to die near her, a woman. So, Tomoe rode into another battle, took the head of the enemy's leader, and brought it back to her master. And this earned her great respect. And this is how she became known as Japan's first general. Maybe one day, I can prove myself worthy. 
like Tomoe did. Remembering Tomoe sparked something inside of Nakano. I will return home, not to cry and wait for the war to come. No, I will teach my community to fight. That's very good, mother. Just remember to thrust from the center. That's your core of strength. Little sister. Wrong. Your your form is all wrong. You know better than this. Ah, yes. That's better. That is how you strike a death blow. Training was going well, but the dangers of the war were coming closer and closer. Something must be done. Forces are advancing from the west. They will be here any day now. What can we do? We are just women and children here. You know what they will do to us when they come. You know. Then we must prepare to fight back. Or fight first. Daughters, we have the training, the weapons, and the will. We could attack them, fight them back before they get here. Together, we fight. Or, tonight, you must kill me. We know what they will do to our bodies, the dishonor. We will die before we allow that. Girls, will you join me? Nakano, will you lead us? Yes, mother. To the end. And that night... The Joshitai was formed, an all-woman band of fighters, sisters, mothers, students, concubines, and samurai. No one asked them to fight. In fact, no one wanted them to fight, but they fought with such bravery and ferocity that they became a lethal collection of local women and girls. In combat, Nakano became known for taking on modern weapons against her prized Naginata. She was determined to fight the samurai way. There is no way around the Yanagi Bridge. They will have to cross past us. What should we do? Advance? Head on? That's suicide, mother! It is our only hope. We must advance head on, deal as much damage as possible. And if we die, then we die with honor, little sister. All the women of our clan will die with honor. The Joshitai advanced. The men were surprised to see the women. The general ordered his troops not to attack, but they were just a bunch of women and girls. 
the men's hesitation gave the Joshitai time to inflict heavy casualties. Nagano killed six men before she was mortally wounded. Little sister, you fought so bravely. I am so proud of you. But now is the time you must, you must kill me. Take my head and give me a proper burial. I am no man's war trophy. Honor your sister. You are exhausted from fighting. Let me perform this duty. Thank you, Mother. I will do what must be done now. She carried her sister's head from the violence of the battlefield to a quiet pine tree near Temple. She buried the head and gave her sister the proper burial she deserved for all her bravery, courage, and love. Little sister gave Nakano's treasured Nakinata to the nearby temple where it rests to this day, protecting all those who pass beneath it. Brave people of the vanguard, gals, guys, and everybody in between. Have you checked in with your heart today? How you doing? What's making you bloom? Welcome to another episode of Vanguard of the Viragos, where we revisit the heroines of human history to learn from this hidden archive of treasures. I'm your hostess with the most S, Chelsea D. I'm currently in Washington, D.C., and I want to uplift that I am on the ancestral lands of the Nacotchtank, Anacostan, and Piscataway peoples. I want to also uplift the generations of mothers who have birthed the hands and lives that have loved and protected this land for longer than any of us have been around. To those still fighting to protect the air, land, and water that we need, I thank you. As a bit of an accessibility check-in, uh, I'm doing okay today. I've got a little bit of uh, phlegm going on in my throat. It's probably from being up late recording stuff. So that that's how I'm doing. Uh, and this is the portion of the show where I chat with a special guest. And today's special guest is very special. Uh, I just like to tell stories. I'm a creative who is addicted to diverse representation and storytelling for the stories we tell mold the people we become. But my guests on this show are folks who are actively studying, preserving, and dare I say, making history. These are the real 
heroes. And today's hero is my mother, Miss Tia Harris. <laughs> Welcome, Ma. <laughs> Hey, Chels. <laughs> oh, it's so, it's such an honor to have you here, um, especially for, for today's episode, which is focusing on the dynamics of mothers and daughters um, in wartime, which is a remarkably striking for today's, uh, you know, for today's conversation. <laughs> uh, so it's really perfect, really perfect to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for being here with us. It is such an honor. It is such an honor. <laughs> All right, so let's do a, let's do a quick check in. How are you doing? What's making you bloom today? Oh my goodness! The sun is shining through my windows. I am breathing easy, and all is well on the northern front in Washington <laughs> D.C. So it's good. It's a good day. It's a good day. Yes. I recently heard this phrase, the sun is shining and the wind is blowing. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that's that's pretty much all you need. And that's then it. and then this weekend the snow will be snowing. So we get the full range here in DC. <laughs> the whole range. All of it. Oh man. So I'm just so I'm so glad to just dive in with you because you are so Dynamic is the word that I like to use. So multifaceted. You've worn so many hats. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You've traversed so many industries. Um, but I there's there's a there's a through line in what you do. So mm -hmm. talk to us. Tell us your area of expertise. Um, how would you describe the work that you do? And you know, anything you're working on right now. Okay. Um, well. Tia, she, her, let's just get that clear, <laughs> straight, straight out of the blocks. Um, who I am as a person, the daughter, the sister, the mother, the friend, the creative, um, really has influenced my trajectory and uh, in, in the things that I, that I love to do. I have a theater background. Um, I work as an educator, a curator, an inspirator. Um, but who I am and my background in theater is the key to understanding who Tia is and what influences my curation and um, my inspiring abilities. So theater to me is the one all-encompassing art. I mean, when you think about it, um, it's storytelling meets visual arts, storytelling meets dance, storytelling meets music. And it's that convergence that I love. So my signature in anything I do, whether I'm in the classroom, whether I'm at a cultural institution, whether I'm at a historic site, is to bring a multi-arts perspective to the experiences that I'm creating for, for people. That's where my, my passion lies. The second half of that is um, because I've worked at um, some very, very cool cultural institutions, um, 
I've been drawn and deepened my commitment to community and bringing community online. And you know, I have to say, communities of color in particular. So as a teacher, you know, at, at Ellington, I was, I was influencing um, young minds, particularly um, students of color. Um, and then in New York, in Brooklyn, I'm, I'm reaching out to community. The Kennedy Center, I'm reaching out um, to community with the power of the arts and its ability to change lives. At this very moment, I am what I call, I delicately call, um, a humanities advisor. Because it's become time for me to pass the torch. And I think I can best do that by, by being a mentor and advisor or whatever the next generation of culture bearers needs. Wow. <laughs> I mean, a lot. that's a lot. <laughs> but it's so, you know, it's so apropos because one of the things that has really stood out to me with, with, with curating the guests who I'm going to be interviewing for this season is you know, some of them study the classics and some of them, you know, they mentioned that there is this divide that people of color do not feel welcome in, in, in a lot of these spaces around history. There isn't a feeling of this is yours too. And I think about, I've been telling these stories to, to these, um, you know, antiquities experts about how I went to the Duke Ellington School of the Arts in high school, which you were one of my teachers. And, um, we did a production of Antigone when I was in high school. And so I was exposed to this level of language and these images and just the epic scale of these ideas and characters. And y'all as a faculty of folks made me feel at home in this thing, you know? And so fast forward to 2021, here I am like holding the, you know, really evangelizing that we have a place in the classics. We have a place in ancient history. Um, and I would say that comes from so much of what y'all did to create that environment at the Duke Ellington School of the Arts. So uh -huh. Uh -huh. thank you. You are welcome. It's, <laughs> it's an obligation, you know? I mean, um, if we don't prepare the next generation of culture bearers and arm them well in whatever way we can, then all is lost. But if we do our job, then the culture and the humanism continues in ways we could not imagine because every generation is an improvement on the last. But we got to make sure you got the right tools to do it. And that's that, that's been my goal. Yeah. Oh. Absolutely fantastic. All right, so let's dig into a little bit about this uh, this virago that we're focusing on for this episode. Nakano Takeko, who along with her family members, her, her mother and her, her little sister, formed the Joshitai, which was this all-femme all band of fighters who were, you know, not invited <laughs> I always love the fact that people were like, no one wants you here. No one asks you to fight. Bye. Like nobody, nobody wants you here. But they were like, we are, we're who is left where we are and we have to do something. We don't want to 
sit and wait to be brutalized, basically. So had you ever heard of uh, of Nakano? Do you have any connection to Japan or? I'd never heard of Nakano. Um, but as I but as I listened to the demo that you sent me, um, of course, because 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 in our family, in our family, there's a strong connection, generational connection, and we receive so much from those that came before us, right? Um, we're really into that kind of um, feminine power and what it can do for you if wielded well, right? And so that's that's always at our at our core. And we we come from a family of educators, and so by nature, we we teach to learn, right? So so it's not facts that you learn. You learn how to learn, and then it becomes a lifelong learning um, experiment, right? Or, or an experience. And so the whole notion of, of the, the mothers and the sisters and the grandmothers and all of that in this story just transported me in two ways. So transported me back to that notion of literally we would die for each other. As Powell's and, and Harrison's, we would die for each other. Um, but also we support each other in any, in any way we can, even when it gets gruesome, right? Even when it gets gruesome. Um, so that part of Nakano's story was very, very familiar, very, very, very familiar to me. Now, um, God forbid that, uh, you or anyone should have to cut my head off after a difficult war um, and, and bring it, um, bring it back. But I am, I am assured that with my women folk surrounding me, I could easily die with honor. And so that was very touching to me. That was very touching that the depth of that connection, right. Um, and the strength of the women but then on another level, this, this transporting hit me with the, with the soundscape that was very Japanese. It was strongly Japanese. It took me, literally transported me back to the time many years ago when I visited Japan. I visited ancient forests. I visited... Buddhist temples. I visited Japanese tea houses, right? And so that immersion was just peaked when I listened to this story because environmentally, that's a part of the relationships that we you know that we that we create with our with our women folk. So yeah, it was really it 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 hearkened back to that trip. Um, and in a really, really, really good, good way, good way. But it also, you know, this whole notion of, it was a very special little, little childhood story. My father insisted that I take martial arts when I was very, very young, when I was very young. And I hated it. I absolutely hated it. 
because I was the only girl in the class. I had to break the boards, which I couldn't do. I had to do all of that stuff and I would cry. And eventually my mother talked him into letting me not going, not go anymore. But I can only imagine if I had those martial arts in my Virago toolbox, and if I'd pass that on to you, oh man, talk about badass. There would no nothing, no stopping, no stopping us. So on so many levels, this story spoke to me. Oh wow. <laughs> and there's so much in what you were saying that um that really stood out to me. And I want to start with I told you this was going to flow free. Um, (laughs) But I I was going to start with um, feminine leadership. You know, you have you have played some executive roles in um, some major cultural institutions. And I'd like to hear a little bit more about how would you define feminine leadership? Are there obstacles um, people should be aware of or that you've overcome that you'd like to talk about? But like, what is feminine leadership to you? What what does leading from a femme place mean to you? You know, I think the feminine instinct is one of our strongest um, superpowers, right? Um, And so by necessity, because many times where I was landing in the cultural landscape um, was not populated by women executives or women, you know, in leadership roles, um, I had to develop this grit, this, this um, take no prisoners kind of, kind of approach to my work. Um, this, I had to bring the strength forward, but couple it with that feminine intuition, which I think is what makes us as leaders so extraordinary the mix of of being able to be those things combined right um our our condition as black women in this country has forged um an impenetrable armor and that's very useful that is very very useful but we can also take off that that armor head, right? And touch and feel and soothe in ways that are invaluable. Uh-huh. I think it's a constant, it's 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 an eternal struggle. But if you allow the struggle to weight you down then it damages your inertia, right? So I'm aware of it. I'm cognizant of it. I hit it head on, but it doesn't diminish me anymore. Now, when I was younger and I was a people pleaser, which is mm-hmm. another feminine facet, a facet, I think sometimes for us, um, uh, it, it was troublesome. It was extremely troublesome to me because I want you to respect me and like me. Now, I know the work is so important that I don't really care if you like me. I deserve your respect. But if you aren't able to give it freely or to show it, I'm cool with that because I'm going to do what I need to do anyway. 
You know what? I mean, that is just such a lesson beyond biology, beyond gender, beyond social constructs is how are we, how and why are we carrying the burden of some of these things and how can we release them so that we can really be at our full potential? You know what I mean? As opposed to being stunted by external expectations and then internalized expectations. You know? I think one of the, um, one of the things that's important, and this comes from an edu- educator's perspective, is um, is it's important it's important for us to lean to um, to allow our identities to flourish, to create our own identities, right, and allow them to fl- flourish. And I think the history and these stories of these. Um, incredible black melanin brown you know women is identity building and fortifying so the more i know of those that came before me the more i'm able to establish myself firmly in what i know i need to do so the the influence of history the influence of history is paramount. And you know, in this country, and we, we've discovered this most recently um, through this newly unveiled or newly discovered by some social injustice in America, still don't understand people who didn't know that this was, that this was here. But the educating process has to change and it has to change so that it tells the truth it tells the whole story and it celebrates those historical figures, both everyday and extraordinary, that haven't been introduced. That's important to the forming of identity in young people. And so I think what you're doing with the, with the Virago series is maybe even more important than you know because that's the tool by which we can bring people into their own understanding of who they are and how they fit in into the world. It's, it's, the, it's the standing on the shoulders, right? It's the ancestors are in the room moment. So it's really, really important for us to re-envision how we teach the history um, and who we teach it to, because it's not only important for, for black and brown youth to know their history, to identify and be empowered by it. But non-Black and brown people need to understand and to celebrate the situation too. So I'm talking about universal re-education. And you know who, you know, that just takes me, takes me to Jimmy, you know, (laughs) Jimmy, Jimmy Baldwin. Jimmy Baldwin has a quote, if you hide one part and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, um, Paraphrase it, but and of course it is not going to be as eloquent. But his whole point is, if you hide one portion of your history, you hide all portions of history. And this is actually from what I'm thinking. The quote is from his talk to teachers, mm-hmm. and he was talking about you have to teach the whole history. You have to teach yeah. the ugly parts, the dark parts, yeah. the scary parts, because what you have to understand is that by covering up black history and black contributions, he was speaking specifically about black Mm -hmm. folk, but by covering this up, you are also covering up your history as he was speaking to white people, you know? So what you don't know about us, you also will not know about yourself. Uh And that was something that was 
really um, profound to me when I when I read that essay because he or speech that he gave because he really dug into American educational culture yeah. and um, the tendency to not really illuminate all all that is there. Um, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? I'm, I'm thinking about the 1776 commission or report or something 1776, but it's, it's a, it's a reaction to the 1619 project, um, which I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, with the New York times and Nicole Hannah Jones. Um, but the, the 1776 project was the Trump administration's response to the 1619 project. Patriotic history. Um, Patriotic history, right? It's a, yeah, it's a, yeah, yeah. it's a proposal about patri- and we should only be learning history that 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 that, that is- um, paints America, yeah, as yes, patriotic. Yes, you are not a patriot. You are not a patriot. You are not patriotic if you bring to light the systemic racism, mm-hmm. this, this this inherent problematic aspect of our history. So so, but what that does really, you know, I mean that that. That, that couches, that cushions, that protects white privilege, right? Hmm. If, if, you don't know the, if you don't know the whole story, um, then, then white privilege can stay intact. But once you know the entire story, the real story, the beautiful story, the ugly story, then you begin to question white privilege. And that's a dangerous thing. And so his, I think his goal in all things was ultimately to not achieve equality, social justice, some balance, some equilibrium in the country, but to preserve white privilege at all costs. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think so. So um, let me tell you, there's 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 this favorite quote of mine. So now I'm really into visual art right now. Right. And 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 what what art should do. Um, so I'm I'm going to go along with Jimmy, and I'm going to say <laughs> that, um, and he said something similar to this, um, that art, and this is the importance of art. This is why art is so critical, the arts and art and visual art, in this re-education of America, is because it has the potential to do this, and this is what this is what the quote is. Art should comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. So what this, the, the core to me of this re-education of America is to bring that disturbing part forward because that's the only way to clean it up. You can't, you can't get rid of it unless you first acknowledge it feel the disruption in your soul and move on, move on from it. Right. And so this, this, this patriotic um, curriculum, I think it, uh, you know, it had this curriculum to go along with it um, is, is not, it's not going to do what this country needs it to do. You know, we gotta, we gotta use art to comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable, and that's and that's my that's my kind of leading thought for the reeducation and new curriculum is yes, let us make the children slightly uncomfortable. Yes, let us comfort 
those who are feeling ill at ease, right? So I'm I'm talking, as you can tell, I'm talking, I'm speaking from not only an educational perspective, but an emotional one, because our current situation is wrought with emotion and we got to deal with that. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm always thinking about that Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa. And mm-hmm. like, you know, I recognize there's, there's, um, on the back end after, after, after the confessions, you know, questions of amnesty, you know, it gets a little, a little dicey, but I do think that there is real value in being able to just say, this hurt me. You did this. I did that. You know what I mean? What I would say in workshops when we were still, when outside was open, <laughs> you know, I would say <laughs> we would have these, we set room agreements with folks, um, as teaching artists, we would have a oops, ouch agreement, which mm-hmm. is we agree that sometimes we make a oops and that oops causes an ouch. And it's mm-hmm. not that you are a terrible person and you should be, you know, annihilated. And it's not that you are always going to be beaten down and, and you know, um, victimized. That's not, you know, we can, we can, um, we can have um, there's so there's so many other possibilities on the other side of mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. truth right and yeah. i love to think of um now let's get to the archives because i yeah. love to think of archives and i think that you were the you probably you were the one mm-hmm. who introduced me to archives archiving that um you know your work at the national portrait gallery really opened the door for me to feel comfortable in in archives and in a place where where history is being kept and 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 preserved and curated and nurtured and whatnot um so i'm thinking about why i love archives though and it's because and this relates to something you were saying earlier it's the receipts you know i and i use that phrase receipts like this is evidence you know that that excellence and courage and valor existed which means it has to exist now you know what i mean so i can't it it becomes hard for me to accept whatever the prevailing narrative is if I have these receipts. How do we explain uh, Nakano Nakano? I got to figure out the um, em- emphasis on the right syllable. <laughs> but you know, <laughs> when you have the receipts of the Joshi Tai, how do yeah. you how do you really settle for someone telling you you just gonna have to take this beating? You know what I mean? It's yeah. Yeah, but I do recognize that there are people who can physically fight, but that there is so much mental and psychological, mm-hmm. and like you mentioned earlier, emotional work that has to be done before you can really combine yeah. the physical with the internal and yep. spiritual. Yep. You know. Yeah. yeah. So I'm going to go back to so that I'm going to I want to pick up on something you said about the archives, um, and this 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 is all you know it's all connected, right? Um, so when I when I when I discovered the richness of um, archival work, I came at it from a curatorial perspective, you know, an education curator, if you will. And I was working at the portrait gallery and delving into their collection, all the time complaining and saying to the powers that be at the portrait gallery you will not attract diverse audiences if they do not see themselves. 
And if they don't see this place as a safe space for their learning and experiencing, and they won't see that unless they see themselves, not only on the walls and the portraits, but also um, in the staff, et cetera, right? So I start going through this archives and it's amazing. Now, based on my prior experience with the portrait gallery, I, I did not know that they had such a rich collection of portraits of people of color. Now the central question becomes, what happens when the curators aren't bringing those receipts forward? So it can live in the archives all day, all night, all year for millennia, right? But if there is no one bringing it out and forward, then it's not doing the full job that it can do. So this is another reason I like working with young, um, young artists who, you know, and, and creatives and makers are curators because what they're doing is they're pulling those receipts out of, you know, out of the collection and they're building a story around them and presenting them in what, whatever way they, whatever way they choose. Um, but there's, that's the reason. So you've heard me say this before and I'm going to say, I'm going to say it forever. Black is a lived experience, right? And who better than to tell my story or to tell the story of marginalized, disenfranchised uh, people of color than someone in the lived experience. So a call for curators of color to mine those archives from their experience as a lived person of color is critical. It's absolutely critical. And it also feeds into um, controlling the narrative because we need to begin to control the narrative. We need to begin to pull the receipts, bring them forward for all to see and enjoy and grow from, right? Mm -hmm. um, and comparatively speaking, it's the same for curriculum. So who decides what's in the curriculum is incredibly important. So it comes full circle to who's at the table. Who, who is at the table? Because we are needed at every single table in order to bring these gems forward in a way that only we can do. And I'm not talking exclusionary um, tactics here. I'm talking about joining forces. So bringing that work out of the archives, it has to be seen. It has to be seen. And it's a teaching and growing tool because... Um, you would you would be you would be surprised. And I'm not just talking about the portrait gallery. I'm talking about the the whole of the Smithsonian. The artifacts, objects, and artworks that the Smithsonian holds that could tell a multitude of stories is just it's incredible. And so I often have to question. I'm so happy about the new Black Museum on the Mall. Um, so I have to question. Okay. So when are y'all gonna bring these out? When are y'all? When are you all going to balance them in um, presentation, right? And and that is what's beginning to happen now. You know, the fortunate part of this, um, I don't know, this 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 period of of 
discovery of <laughs> racial injustice is that now, as I notice it, museums and art galleries, et cetera, they are digging deeper into their collections. They're trying to find any and everything that tells the story that they haven't freaking told for 200 years, right? So, I mean, there's a good side to it. <laughs> this, this diversity, equity, and inclusion stuff that's happening, you know, I get suspect and sometimes because mm-hmm. if here's what I do, I, I will go literally, I will go to the museum, look at their diversity um, statements, and then I'll see what programming they're doing. And then I go and I look at their staff and I mm-hmm. see if their staff represents the represents the statement, right? So now there's a way oop, for us to, to be, to, to hold people accountable, right? So it's getting better. It's going to get better. It's going to get better. That was a long story, but that archive is important. That that archive is really, really important. It's 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 crucial. It's absolutely yeah. critical. And like the idea of the importance of the curator, the importance of who is in there bringing these things forward, you know, is so crucial. I was thinking about, uh, and I hate to bring this up and not know exactly the person's name, but there was like, some lawmaker who, and he was like, it was one lawmaker, it was like a lone lawmaker who voted to not have a new museum be built to highlight um, Latinx people. Oh, no, I didn't know. I didn't realize. Yes. And so, you know, this person, this person voted to not allow for a budget for, for money to be put aside to build that museum. And the reasoning was it's divisive. So if we have a museum that's talking about Latinx experience in America, that's harmful to America? Or it's like, it's going to tear America apart to talk about this experience. And then we already have, I mean, it's a, people had to fight tooth and nail to get um, what you call the new Black Museum on the mall. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> right, well, right. Um, African-American... It's like a it's National a, Museum of African American History and Culture. Boom, there it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that one. And then we also have um the Native American um museum, yes. the history museum. Yes. That that was right. a long time coming. And I yeah. you know, I just yeah. feel like yeah. communities have been, you know, fighting mm-hmm. for forever to mm-hmm. have our our archives and our contributions truly mm-hmm. um tabulated, preserved, and shared, which brings me to, um, you mentioned something about the relevancy or whether or not museums and theaters and all these cultural institutions are going to survive COVID is really dependent uh-huh. on how relevant you, how, how indisposable you make yourself to the communities that, that your institution is in, which means people have to be able to see themselves, which means they will be able to invest and find meaning and purpose in your museum, you know? <laughs> and I think about oh, okay. when you first started working at Weeksville Heritage Center, and the first time I went in and I saw those those gorgeous, um, their portraits, the photographs, their portraits of like these black bodies in these like beautiful, almost religious um, motifs and symbols. And I was like, this place is for me. Like this, Uh this little oasis, this little patch in Brooklyn 
is supposed to be for me. And I, I just gleaned so much confidence and so much um, pride in learning about Weeksville and learning about how the community, which makes me think about the Joshi Tai, how the community came together to find their own material culture and, and preserve it. And, and, you know, what, what it must have took and give me your thoughts on this, Ma. What must it have taken for, for Black people at the time of founding Weeksville and then s- centuries later, rediscovering Weeksville? I mean, what, what has to be going through your head? What has to be propelling you to preserve your culture in the midst of a larger culture that doesn't see it as important or something, you know, to that effect? Like, what do you think is the driver how do we get Weeksville's? How do we get the rediscovering of Weeksville's? Um, so the Weeksville, the Weeksville story, um, really, we call it emancipation history, right? Um, because there's, there's the studying you can do of history from uh, the institution of slavery perspective. Um, but this, this thing, this this beast that that is Weeksville um, was a story. First of all, that I never learned in school. Talk about the reeducation of America. I didn't learn emancipation history. I didn't even know it existed. To me, as a young girl, my history was based in the institution of slavery history. Right? I didn't know that there were self-determined freedom seekers um, in 1838. Like who knew? Well, they knew, right? (laughs) They knew. Um, So it's all, this is like, so this is really sort of complicated to me, but um, so this, I think it's, I think it's, it's this self-determination is born of struggle. Right. So out of the struggle comes the quality of self-determination, intentionality, activism um, and all those things that move a culture, a culture forward. Right. So the fact that these men and women, mostly men, but there were some unnamed uh, women, too, sometimes knew enough to purchase land in what we now call the Crown Heights um, area in Brooklyn, and to begin to build homes, affordable homes for free people of color, knowing that purchasing this land would also, I think it was if the land was valued at $250 or more, they were then also afforded the right to vote. Right. So we're talking about really visionary community based movements happening in 1838. Right. Um, Which is amazing. And we know that 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 the Weeksville community lasted and to uh, for decades. Right. More than decades. And then. Progress happened, progress happened, right? So it was time to build new living 
quarters, right? And that is when the housing projects began to be built across you know, New York and, and the industrialized nation, actually. Um, but that seed of determination still lived in that community, that de determination born of struggle and strife and pride, right? So when these historic houses were going to be um, torn down, the community came to bear on this situation and demanded that their history be preserved. Now, it's very timely because we're talking about the late 60s, early 70s, when the, the civil rights movement and black power and the black arts movement were at their height. So people were predisposed towards celebrating their history, right? And acting in ways um, that supported that. So they demanded the preservation of these houses and their history with an eye toward the future, with an eye toward their children knowing who and what they were. Um, so to, to, to build a new building, a new Wigsville Heritage Center in 2014, that was completed in 2014, was the third phase of this self-determination, of this activism, of this celebration, of this pride born of, um, of determination, right? So we build this, or they build, this new, new center that surrounds the historic houses, almost like a protecting space. It, it is truly a sanctuary. And that's the other, the other thing that, that we do well is we, we create sanctuaries mm -hmm. out of necessity and out of love. We create sanctuaries. And Weeksville was a sanctuary, a safe place to work, you know, and live. So we build this beautiful new building to continue this legacy, continue this legacy, and people weren't coming. They weren't coming. And so I, I, I am so confused. I'm like, wait a minute, we're in the community of historic Weeksville. The seed lives on in these people. Why are they not coming? Why do we not get this ease of continuing, you know, in this activist and self-determined way. And so what we decided to do was to ask the community, why you ain't coming? You know, this is for you. This is, this is all about you, right? And so we asked them and that's critical. That's key. And we had to talk back. They told us why. And one of the reasons was it don't look like it's for us. And that's where those beautiful images on all of the all of the, the the glass came from. It was a message. It was a cue. It was a clue. It was an invitation. This is for you, right? To just make it known to to, to everybody. But that's something that I think museums across the country are going to have to do. I told that long story to grab at this point. Museums um, and cultural institutions across the country are going to have to build communities, not audiences. What's the difference? There's a difference in perspective. 
there, right? Because if you deconstruct communities, you know, communities are supportive, communities are celebratory, communities are safe, communities are just, communities um, are educate. All the things that build community and the interconnectedness of people with each other, their history, and their environment. If we as museums and cultural institutional leaders um, think that way about building that with the community, we'll be far more successful in improving um, relations, right? And being able to bring this re-education to those communities, right? But if we continue to be concerned about numbers, and how many people came through our door, um, then we're, we're not going to be able to sustain the good impact that we could have on the communities we live in. And I say the communities we live in, but truly in my dream world, um, museums now have the potential, museums and historic sites now have the potential to live in any community because of this newfound virtual opportunity, right? And so now we can begin to build communities that are not only, you know, the neighborhoods in which we live, but far, far, far reaching. So our um, our task now um, is broader, is bigger, and is deeper. Here, here. <laughs> that's, that's what we can do. That's what we have the potential to do. But it comes in shifting the perspective and you know um the course in miracles used to say that um a miracle is not this thing that that is set upon us right a miracle is simply a change in perspective and so museums can make the miracles happen if we shift our perspective to, now we realize we realize that we have to raise money. You know, we got to keep the doors open. We got to keep the staff staff hired. But then that is a new um, a new task for funders and donors to wrap their heads around too. Is how do we support in a real financial way the work of museums to impact, improve, and sustain communities through education and entertainment, the arts and empowerment. Yeah. Keyword sustain. Every, everything's got to change now. Everything's got to shift. And if it doesn't, then it's all, you know, bullshit. And people just talking, talking out of the side of their mouth. So now it's, it's the Eddie Murphy. What <laughs> have you done for me lately? Now you're going to have to show me, you're going to have to show me, what you've done for me. And that's what communities are going to be saying. What have you done for me lately? And if, you know, the answer is not ringing, ringing clear and loud, well, well. They'll go somewhere else. <laughs> they will go somewhere else. So it's a, it's a hard, it's a hard and horrible time on the one hand, but it's an amazingly, um, it's, it's potent. The potential for change and improvement and impact, real impact, not surface impact, 
is right in the palm of our hands if we mm-hmm. seize this mm-hmm. opportunity Absolutely. and we do it for I mean, real. I can't wait till, you know, Tia's re-education plan for America it, curriculum is released. Okay, let's get on this this for this administration. Y'all need to come on now. Uh, so I have two last questions. Um, you know, because I mean, we could just we could just yeah we could just go. Um, and I'm like it, to get to these two questions, I'm like uh, having to curate these last questions. But so the last one of the last ones is. What question is haunting you as we are in this place of potent potential? What's haunting you? What? Um, I think it, I think this harkens back to um, my earlier comment. And that is, have we as elder artists adequately prepared the next generation of culture bearers to institute the changes, the improvements, broad scale impact that needs to happen right now. Have we given you enough? Have we done our duty? Have we met our obligation? Have we fulfilled um, the criteria, you know, necessary to prepare the next generations for doing the good work, for doing the real work, for picking up the mantle for carrying the torch and for, if not crossing the finish line, getting really close to it, really close to it. That haunts me. That haunts me. Some of the things that I, some of the, you know, I don't always understand young people. I don't always understand them, but I've, I've become comfortable with that because I don't have to. I don't have to. But they do have to meet um, their responsibilities. But before I can expect the new culture bearers to meet their responsibilities, I have to be absolutely 100% sure that we met ours. And so that's what keeps me up at night. Do you have enough? Is your Virago toolbox filled to the brim, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, with everything you'll need? To go to war. Yeah, and that might haunt me now. That's the and one. I feel like that's, that's the one that keeps haunting me question for every generation. <laughs> um, you know, and and you may you may always question probably um, the the ancestors on whom shoulder I stand wondered the same thing. Wondered the same thing. Um, so you're never quite content with the answer, but it's important to ponder that and to work toward it because you get closer and closer and closer um, to, to tooling you well. Oh, so rich. Just so much, so much food for thought. Um, I think there's a second, I think there's a second part to that too. Um, And it's it's something that um, has, has, has become apparent to me as I do more programming um, and I, and I'm not afraid. I, I, I embark upon fearless programming, which is what you must be. You must be unafraid to tackle the tough subjects. Um, I, I hold that. I hold. I hold that the arts. It is through the arts that black joy and black rage are shared, and it's there's an equilibrium there, right? But the rage part is important. 
And so my other fear is that we won't tackle that rage part. People will, will shy away from the rage part. Already, when I, when I notice people, sometimes they see a very, they see a piece of art that is full of rage and they shy away from it. But that rage is as important to articulate, to share, to overcome as the joy. So I fear that, I fear that fear of rage will stifle our efforts, will stifle our efforts. And so my fear is that we'll put the rage aside because it's too uncomfortable to deal mm-hmm. with, to view, to kind of, to kind of squish around with, and we'll, we'll only feel comfortable with the joy. We need both of them. That's how you arrive at harmony is, is, is moving through that rage. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as a, to come back to the beginning, as a black woman, you know, we've always been accused of being angry black women. And it wasn't until I began to explore the usefulness of rage, right? And the, the ability to, um, to create in a rageful moment. Audre Lord, the uses of anger. There you go. There she is. Yeah, it's important. So those would be my two fears. You know, are you tooled enough? And are we ready? Are we ready mm. to deal mm. with, equally with the joy and the rage? Of our experience, because that's 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 humanity. Humanity yeah. is not one note, and being able to claim your human humanity is about being able to play all the notes in that scale of emotion. That's right. So, last question. Although this is really one of my favorites, and it's so much fun. Um, who is a virago from history, present or or or, or past, who you'd like to hang out with? Maybe grab a drink, maybe go get dinner, hang out in Paris, you know, who is it? (laughs) Okay, so that's what I I was going to qualify. I was totally going to qualify. I I would say that I, I would love to hang out with the word warriors, the word warriors of um, those voices in 20th century poetry in particular, um, who were able to weaponize their words in a way that made a place in the world for me. And you know who they are. They're Nikki Giovanni, Audre Lorde, Sonia Sanchez, Gwendolyn Brooks, Lucille Clifton, um, Gwendolyn Brooks. That's it's, it's that, it's those women, it's those women, because they, they, along with um, the women of my family, they carved this place for me and they forged a path that allowed me to understand and know that not only could I arrive, but I have arrived. And so... I give them all props for that. And I pull them out. I pull I pull their books out, right? 
Um, and and those those that are still around, like maybe Nikki Giovanni, I kind of stalk her just to get that stuff, just to get that stuff right. So that's that's who I would hang out with. That's who I would hang out with. Oh, what a grace! <laughs> and I find myself doing a very similar thing. You know, sometimes I get off Twitter doing my my doom scrolling. I don't even have a Twitter account. I just follow various local journalists. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And sometimes I'm like, okay, I got to just get my Audre Lord. I got to get my, you know, I got to find my Octavia Butler. I got to make a, spot, a little altar. It's almost like a little altar of yeah. books yep. Yep, that yep, I yep, have yep. to yeah. sometimes yeah. just call on because I oh just, gosh. oh my God, <laughs> refer it's to true. the map sometimes. It, it's, it's true. I mean, those women in particular, I mean, I'm, I'm loving, um, I'm loving contemporary, um, uh, black female poets. I really do. I mean, Elizabeth Alexander and of course, um, our inaugural, our, our, our poet, youth poet laureate, right? Um, I love them. I love them. I love them. Amanda Gorman, right? Um, and I love them. I absolutely love them. But, but it's that weaponizing words that was so important at the period that these women were writing mm -hmm. um, that, that really words, it helped me understand how powerful um, a poet can be, mm -hmm. you know, their words, their words can change things, right? And mm -hmm. words are weapons, words are weapons, and warriors need weapons. <laughs> so, <laughs> they surely like, do. Takano had the pole, the pole arm. Oh, right, right, the Naginata, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so those are the ones for me. The word warrior. The, the women word warriors. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the first, like, poets I've heard. That's the first po group of yeah. poets I've heard, which is, you know, just yeah. the beauty of, of having all of y'all just assembling you know, it really feels like assembling a, a superhero team of people who are like, I does this, I knows this, I lives this, I loves this, yeah. and I'm opening opening it up to you. It's it's really an honor to like just sit in here and just collect. I'm so grateful that there's these platforms that allow me to record <laughs> because it's like more archiving, more archiving. We have to. Yeah. You know, really preserve, really preserve. It is, it is true. It is true. And I'll say this, that you are, that you're embarking upon the many projects you are, and in particular, the, this Virago um, project is reassuring that we have indeed, we have indeed prepared you well to take the mantle. Okay. I will claim that, Ma. I will claim that. Oh, you know, just trying to live, just trying to live up to the ancestors. Yep. Uh, well, thank you. I'm going to do our closeout. This has been so, just so rich. And I always love these conversations because I just walk away on fire. Like, literally... You know, my partner and I are practicing Tai Chi. And so I'm thinking a lot about like life force and how you are harnessing your life force. And so these conversations are like so incredibly vital, 
you know, I mean, I just, I can't thank y'all enough. Thank you. Thank you for, for joining me for, for this week and joining me for life, honestly. Um. (laughs) Thanks for providing a safe space. And I think that's really important. We have to feel safe enough to honestly share. (sighs) Love you so much. All right. Well, thank you to my guests for generously agreeing to speak with us. Um, and thanks for uh, thanks to everyone for listening to another episode of Vanguard of the Viragos with Chelsea D. This conversation and more resources, and I'm going to plug this now. My mom and I are working on a curriculum. We're going to have some tool, tool, tools and weapons. <laughs> okay, not, not that actual weapons, but symbolic weapons, words <laughs> that will bring us into this this um this new dawn so keep a keep an eye out for us because 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 we're coming we're coming for you uh so check us out on the website follow us wherever you subscribe to your podcast this is a whole world so dig in and always remember we are all on the vanguard of a changing time be the difference lead with love Last one didn't sound too furious.